the book of Micah. The book of Micah. As you think about Micah, Micah was a uh, contemporary of Isaiah. So that's kind of our, our time frame here, about 700 years or more uh, before the birth of Christ, 750 to 700. But as we think about Micah, what did Micah look like? We like to do this just to have some fun. We have no idea what Micah looked like, but uh, if you'll notice the guy that's up there on your left, uh, he's looking like a, just a, a forlorn, angry Santa Claus Micah there is how I've, I've termed him. The, uh, the one in the middle there is, is angry Micah because he's got a wall of fire behind him. So that artist said, hey, let's just focus on the judgment uh, in the book of Micah. And so we're going to have Micah in front of a wall of flames behind him. And then the one on the, the right up there is uh, maybe looking more like Rembrandt than he is Micah. But that's uh, Micah from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So that's Mormon Micah up on the the upper right. That's what they think that Micah looked like. But what does Micah look like? We have no idea. We'll find him when we get up to heaven and say, oh, that didn't look anything like the pictures that we saw. What about the background of Micah? Well, Micah's name means who is like Yahweh, who is like Yahweh. And his name actually appears in the book in uh, Micah chapter seven, verse 18. He poses that question. He says, who is a God like you? Who is like Yahweh? That's what his name uh, means, the prophet Micah. What else do we know about this book as far as background? There's no call recorded. So he doesn't have that Jonah moment where God shows up and says to, to Jonah, if you remember, Jonah, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. There's none of that recorded in the, the book of Micah. And so what we do know, though, is that Micah was aware of his prophetic calling. It's not as though Micah just woke up one day and said, you know what, I think today I'm going to stop uh, fishing, I'm going to go uh, tell everybody that God's going to judge them and they need to repent. Uh, in Micah chapter 3 verse 8, Micah is contrasting uh, the, the false prophets of his day with himself. And he says this in chapter 3 verse 8. He says, but as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord. And so Micah knew that he was commissioned by God, but there's no actual call provided in the book for us where we see that. The time frame was during the rains, as it says in Micah chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, whose reigns lasted from about 750 to 700 BC. Again, Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah in that. We believe that this book was written probably during the reign of Ahaz, during the reign of, of Ahaz, the middle of those three kings. And the reason is, that Jotham, as Jotham is remembered by the chronicler and also by the writer of, of Kings, he's remembered as a, a decent king, as a pretty good king. He, his fault was he didn't remove the high places. He didn't tear down the, the, uh, all of the, the idols that were there in Jerusalem or in, and in Israel. But aside from that, as far as being the, a list of kings are, are concerned, he was considered to be a decent king. Same thing with Hezekiah. You may even remember Hezekiah was a good king, that uh, this was towards the end of the the time of Judah before going into exile. And Hezekiah actually tried to put in some reforms to turn the, the nation around and to return them back to the Lord. And so as we look at the judgment content that's revealed in the book of Micah, it makes sense that this would have been written during Ahaz's reign. And Ahaz was a wicked and evil king who was doing just like the kings in the north did, as the book will bear out, just like Ahab and Omri, as the book will specifically mention. Uh, this king Ahaz was not a good king in Judah. He was a king that was leading his people astray into idolatry and into other forms of wickedness that the book will confront. 
Again, he is a contemporary of Isaiah writing around the same time. What else do we know? Well, we know during this time period that Micah was prophesying, that Micah was ministering, uh, Assyria comes and conquers the northern tribes of Israel. They come and lay waste to the, uh, the northern kingdom there. And that's in 722 B.C. 722 B.C., Assyria comes and wipes out northern Israel and carries off those people into exile. And when we think of uh, the, the roadmap here, and we'll see a map in, in just a moment, but when we think of the, the power structure here, even though it's going to be what nation that's going to come against the southern tribes, who's going to carry off the southern tribes? Babylon. But at this point in time in history, Assyria is the world power. And so as Micah is thinking about uh, the, the, the world map and thinking about who's the greatest threat to Israel, he's thinking about Assyria. And in fact, as Ahaz is ruling in Judah during this time, one of the things that's a problem with Ahaz is, is Ahaz is torn between uh, Assyria who wants to conscript Judah to be a vassal state. They want to conscript Judah to pay taxes to the Assyrians so that the Assyrians will leave them alone. But then there was this coalition that was mounting with Syria against the Assyrians. And they were trying to convince Ahaz to come and be a part of their team, to come and stand up against Assyria. And what the prophet Isaiah was writing and, and talking to uh, Ahaz about specifically is he's saying, don't do either of those things. You need to put your trust and confidence in the Lord. Well, Ahaz didn't do that. And he ends up going and siding with this anti-Assyrian coalition, this, uh, this Syrian team that he was with. And in doing so, begins to lead his people into compromise with some of their gods and their worship. And so this is a, a bad time for Israel, both the, both the northern and southern tribes. What's the theme of the book of Micah? The theme of the book of Micah, as we'll see, is this pattern of the Lord judges and the Lord forgives. The Lord judges and the Lord forgives. In fact, that's why he wrote the purpose of the book was to indict the sins, the sins and corruption of Judah specifically, while calling for repentance and offering hope in God's mercy. And so the message of the book is ultimately a positive one. In fact, the way it ends is incredibly positive. But it's not a message that ignores the sins. It's not a message that glosses over the sins of the people and says, oh, it's, it's no big deal because in the end, God is a merciful God. No, Micah understands that there's a very real judgment that's going to be coming upon the people and he's warning them to repent from their sins and to return to the Lord. Here's an idea of the, the world during this time. Again, Assyria is the, the main player on the scene. They're the, the leading world power. And you can see that on this map, that they are the, the largest nation, the largest power at work there. And that, the arrows are showing their expansion even down into uh, the northern tribes of Israel there on the left by the Mediterranean Sea. But this is the, the world according to what was taking place during this time. Uh, sometimes the prophets are confusing and Micah can be a confusing book. Martin Luther said this about the prophets. They have a, a queer way of talking like people who instead of proceeding in an orderly manner, ramble off from one thing to the next so that you cannot make head or tail of them or see what they are getting at. So if you've ever read the prophets and walked away going, I have no idea what he just said. I, I could not follow his line of thought. You're with Martin Luther on that one. You're in, in good company. We're going to make our, our, our best effort there and take a stab at, at trying to, to get a, a, an overarching view of what's going on in the book of Micah. And the way that we're going to do that, though it's been done different ways, is we're going to look at Micah in, in three chunks. There's chapter one and chapter two, and, and that's part one. And in that part one, it, what we're looking at there is, is God's judgment, but also his preservation. 
And then we're going to look at chapters three through five. And in chapters three through five, we're going to see again God's judgment that's impending, but also his peace that he will provide. And then finally, in in chapter six and seven, we're going to see again God's judgment, but then ultimately God's pardon that he will provide. And so that's the way that we're going to tackle this. Some have said, no, it's one through three, then four through five, and then six and seven. Others have said, no, it's one through five, and then six and seven. But we're going to do one through two, three through five, and six through seven. I think that'll give us the best understanding of this pattern. It's, it's an up and down pattern in this book of, again, times of, of God's judgment, but then reminders of God's hope. And so it's a, it's a little bit of a roller coaster ride as we go. But let's get into the text. Micah begins, again, he's re- ministering during the reigns of these three kings. And then he says in verse two, hear you peoples. And each of these sections, chapter one, chapter three, and then chapter six, he's going to start out by saying, hear. It's marking this new section here. He's saying, hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you. God's bringing a charge. He's bringing a lawsuit against the people of Israel. Let the Lord God be a witness against you and the Lord from his holy temple. And then verse 3, which is a terrifying sight. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, and he will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. That's not a sight of God that any of us want to see. Him rending the heavens and coming down from his temple, and as he's coming down, the very mountains are melting under his fury, melting under his wrath as he comes to indict and bring charges against his people. Verse five, all of this is for or due the transgression of Jacob, the sins of the house of Israel, the northern tribes. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria, the capital of the northern tribes there? This is the the transgression. This is the sin. Their leadership has led them astray. And what are the high place even of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? The city of David, Zion, Mount Zion even, has become a high place, a place where idols are worshipped and false gods are honored. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in an open country, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations." total destruction unless we think, well, that's Samaria, not Judah. Look down at verse eight and nine. For this, I will lament and wail and I will go stripped and naked. Just intense mourning here he's he's communicating. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches for her wound, Israel's wound, Samaria's wound is incurable and it has come where? To Judah. So Micah's saying, Judah, you're not exempt from this. You're just as guilty. Ahaz, you've gone after the northern tribes and you've led the people to pursue them as well. And now, verse nine, it has reached to the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. And so God's charge ultimately against Israel and against Judah is one that's to be taken seriously. Micah doesn't start with, hey guys, how are you doing? He starts with, we've got problems. God is going to come. God has a charge against you. He has, he has issue with you. Yes, Israel, but also Judah. And then in verses 10 through 15, he's saying, I I don't want this to be public knowledge. I don't want this shame that we're about to endure through judgment to go out to Gath. I don't want it to to go out to Shafir, to Bethlehem, which is the house of dust. He says, hey, you house of dust, you roll in dust. 
In fact, these words, and I wish we could go through and have the time, but there's, there's a, a wordplay with each of these names of these cities as Micah is going through in verses 10 through 15. For instance, just for one of them, tell it not in Goth. Well, Goth sounded like the Hebrew word for tell or say or speak. So Micah is saying, don't speak about this in speak town. Bethlehem, house of dust, you roll in dust. Shafir, the, 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 the town that was known for its beauty, you're going to go about in shame and nakedness as a result of what God's going to do. And so he's going through mourning. Chapter 2 opens and he begins to go through the specific reasons why. Why is God so upset? What has been going on? He says, woe to those who devise wickedness. Cursed are they, damned are they, and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it's in the power of their hand. These are, are people that are in positions of power to do whatever they want to do. They covet fields and they seize them. Houses and they take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, chapter 2, verse 3, behold, against this family, I am devising disaster. Look at verse five, those that have taken what's not theirs, therefore you who have taken what's not yours, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. The tables will turn. Another thing that was wrong with what was going on is verse six of chapter two. They were looking and they were saying, do not preach. We don't want to hear it. They're putting their fingers in their ears to the messengers of the Lord saying, don't preach to us. Don't preach to us. Don't preach these things. One should not preach of such things, verse 6. Disgrace is not going to overtake us. We're the people of Israel. We're God's chosen ones. We don't need to worry about Assyria. We don't need to worry about God's judgment against us. Don't you know what he's done for us? How he led us out of Egypt? How he brought us into the promised land? After all, we had King David running, reigning over us. We had Solomon reigning over us. We're just... We're just waiting for revival. God's going to return us to that standing. That's the mindset of the people of Israel, all the while just committing rampant wickedness. Verse 11, what kind of preacher do they want? Chapter 2, verse 11. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, worthless preaching, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink. In other words, eat, drink, and be merry. He would be the preacher of this people. That preacher that amasses people that listen and followers because all he does is preach to them about the things they want to hear about. This is why God is going to come in judgment. This is why he's going to rend the heavens and he's going to come down in vengeance and in anger against his people in judgment where the, the mountains are going to melt like wax before him. This is why, because of the, the wickedness that's going on and because of the, the hard-heartedness of the people that they've rejected God and said, we don't want to hear from you or your messengers. And so God is going to come in judgment. It's a, a terrifying opening to the book. But then again, like I said, there's this, this pattern in the book and there's judgment followed by a, a glimpse of hope. And we get that glimpse at the end of chapter two. Look at verse 12. God says this, I will though, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach and goes up before them, they break through and pass the gate going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. So God's saying judgment's coming, but I'm not going to wipe out everybody, Micah. 
there's going to be a remnant. I'm going to preserve a people for myself. And I will be their shepherd. I will lead them out. I will go forth and they will follow me. And I will be at their head. I will be their king that leads them out. Isaiah speaks of this in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 9. Isaiah 1 verse 9. He says, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, this remnant, we would have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. In other words, Isaiah is saying this judgment that the Lord is bringing is so intense that had he not in his grace, in his mercy, left for himself a remnant, a few survivors, Israel, the, the name of Israel, think about that, would have been like the names of Sodom and Gomorrah. Would have been over, destroyed, completely wiped off the face of the earth. Well, as we think about that, it needs to remind us that when we were not saved, when, when we were without Christ, we were in the same position that Israel is in. That we were looking at a future where God was going to rend the heavens and come down angry in judgment and wrath against us. It's the rider on the white horse in the book of Revelation when Jesus is going to come back and he's going to have the name on his thigh that says King of Kings and Lord of Lords and he's going to be wearing a robe that's dipped in blood and his, his eyes are going to be like fire. That scene is, is Christ coming back in judgment and before Christ, that's where all of us are. We're with the, the wicked in Israel here, hearing Micah say God is going to come in judgment and the mountains are going to melt before him and he's coming to judge you for your wickedness. But just like I, I'm sure it was a bit of sweetness in the midst of a lot of bitterness for Micah to hear that God was going to preserve a remnant, so too it was for us when we heard the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that our sins could be forgiven, that we could escape this judgment that was coming. And that's what Micah is saying to the people. There's going to be a remnant. You can escape the judgment that is coming if you will turn from your sins and put your faith in Jesus. We need to first this morning proclaim the good news of God's mercy, just like Micah's doing here. We need to proclaim the good news of God's mercy. Mercy being that act of God whereby he withholds what we actually deserve. And in the book of Deuteronomy, it's interesting, God reminds Israel as they're about to enter into the promised land, he reminds them that, hey, you know what? I, I'm, I'm doing this not for you, but ultimately for me. He says in Deuteronomy 9, he says, do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out, the, the peoples in Canaan before you, that it's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it's because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out from before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, that he may confirm the word that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Why is God being merciful to Israel? Why is God preserving a remnant in this time, during this time of, of Micah? Because of his faithfulness to himself. Because he promised his, his children, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and said, I will be your God, you will be my, my people. And so he's not going to wipe them out because he's made this covenant promise and he's going to preserve that. And it's a, a reminder to us as well that as we've been saved, as we've been recipients of God's mercy ourselves, it's not because of our righteousness. It's not because of the uprightness of our hearts or because we've got a, a resume that God was impressed with. It's because of his mercy. It's because of his grace, his unmerited favor that he poured out upon us because he loved us while we were yet his enemies in Romans chapter 5. 
And so as we think about that, as we reflect on that, it should drive us to want to go out and to proclaim the hope of his mercy. And the book of Micah provides a good model for us because we need to convince somebody of the bad news before they're going to want the the good news. Somebody's got to understand what they need to be saved from before they're going to want a savior. And so Micah is saying, hey, there's judgment coming, but hey, there's a remnant that's going to be left. And if I'm Israel listening to that, my first question is, how can I make sure that I'm part of the remnant? Well, we need to be looking at the lost in our lives and presenting Christ to them in such a way that they can say, hey, how can I make sure that I'm part of the the saved? And then we can bring the gospel to them. And so we need to be like Micah in proclaiming God's mercy to the lost. This opening section of of judgment followed by then the, the hope of this remnant is then followed by more judgment, but then the hope of God's peace in the second section. Chapter three opens and it indicts uh, the, the, the officials and the, the, the prophets during that time, but even the, the priests as well. In that opening section, chapter three, verses one through four, he's looking at the, the officials and the rulers of Israel, of Judah, and saying, you're meant to protect, but instead you're cannibalizing your people. That's the, the language, that's the description that he's making there in those opening verses. Saying you're, you're destroying your own people when you're meant to protect them, you're meant to lead them. And then in chapter 3, verses 5 down through 70, he indicts the, the prophets of the time. Thus says the Lord, verse 5, concerning the prophets who lead my people astray. They cry peace when they have something to eat. In other words, if you bribe them, if you provide something good for them, if you give them good gifts, they're going to give you a good prophecy. Well, the Lord's pleased with you. The Lord has peace in store for your life. But they declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. If you don't bribe that prophet, oh man, they're going to prophesy that God's coming after you in judgment. They're corrupt. God's judgment against them, verse 6, therefore it's going to be night to you without vision, darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets. The day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners shall be put to shame. They shall all cover their lips for there's no answer from God. There's no answer from God. It's repeating what he said in verse four. Look back up at verse four. They will cry to the Lord, the rulers and the officials on the day of judgment. They will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. We think about the silence of God. The silence of God is judgment that God is issuing forth to his people. And I think the silence of God is seen even as we look around our world today. That there's an intolerance for truth. That there's not a desire for God's word. Even as we think about our own country, which at one point in time was anchored to the truths of of God's word, where you would see the Ten Commandments hanging in a a court uh, building because it was a reminder of God's law and it was a reminder of, of God as our ultimate foundation and his law as our ultimate rule and authority. But today we see that those things are are falling left and right. People don't want to hear about what the Bible has to say any longer. And I think this is an extension of the hand of God's judgment, that there is going to be silence on the earth. That those people eventually are going to call out for the Lord when they want him and when they need him. But at that point, it's going to be too late. He's going to be silent. The indictment continues and concludes in verses 10 uh, through 12 there. 
verses 11 through 12. It's heads, the heads, the rulers, again, they give judgment for a bribe. Okay, well, I'll decide in favor of whoever pays me the most. It's priests, teach for a price. In other words, they're going to teach in order to get as many people there as possible to put the money in the offering boxes. They're going to teach a message that's going to say to the people, hey, you know what? God has blessings in store for you. He wants your best life now. You can be abundantly blessed in the Lord. He has favor in store for you. They're not going to preach what Micah is preaching. It's priests teach for a price. It's prophets practice divination for money. Again, if, if you give me enough, I'll, I'll prophesy good things for you. Yet, notice the hypocrisy here, the arrogance. They lean on the Lord in the midst of all this, and they say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. I skipped over verse 8, but in verse 8, Micah contrasts himself to all of this as he's giving this message. He says, but as for me, as for me, I am filled with power with the spirit of the Lord, the contrast. Your prophets have been silenced. God has shut himself off from them because of their corruption. But as for me, I am filled with power with the spirit of the Lord. In other words, Israel, listen to me. You want to hear God? Listen to what I am saying to you. To declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Verse 12 the book opened by saying, hey, you know what? Samaria, Israel, northern tribes, you're going to be laid waste. You're going to be made a field for vineyards. But look at verse 12. Therefore, because of you, you rulers, you priests, you prophets, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins in the mountains of a house of a wooded height. And the mountain of the house, a wooded height. The picture there is, is again, utter devastation. This time, not to Samaria, but to Jerusalem, to the city of David, to Zion, to the temple itself. The city of, a, of the house is going to become a wooded height. In other words, the, the forests are going to retake the hill because there's going to be no one there to, to dwell there. Again, pointing to the exile that's coming. This is the judgment. Again, this is the wickedness. This is why God is running the heavens and coming after Israel. But then we come to chapter four. And you remember from Ephesians chapter two, verses one through three, it's the judgment. It's the, you were children of wrath. You were following the prince of the power of the air. You were sons of disobedience. And then you get to verse four in Ephesians chapter two. In verse four, what does it start with? Two words, but God. Well, we could insert but God between chapter three and chapter four. Hey, Jerusalem's going to be rubble. The forests are going to overtake it again. There's no longer going to be the house of God there. This is devastating news to hear for the people of Israel, for the people of Judah. The ones that were thinking, nothing's going to happen to us. We're the people of God. Please, don't talk to us about judgment. God would never do anything to us. Jerusalem's going to be plowed like a heap of ruins, but God. Chapter four, verse one, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and it shall be lifted up above the hills and the peoples shall flow to it and many nations shall come to it and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. The temple will be restored. 
that he may teach us, no longer these corrupt priests, but that God may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the many peoples, not these corrupt rulers. He shall decide for strong nations far away. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall come and make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. That's the hope that Mike is holding out there. God's preserving that remnant and he's going to preserve that remnant and then eventually he's going to restore Jerusalem. Yes, there's judgment coming and this city is going to be wiped out and the temple is going to be destroyed, but there's a day coming when this mountain will be higher than any other. Well, the nations are not going to gather against us like they are about to, but they're going to flock to us to receive instruction and judgment from the Lord. It's a picture of the millennial kingdom. It's a picture of of what's coming for Israel in the future. And it's the hope that Micah is holding out to those that are saying, what do we need to do? We don't want the judgment of God. What should we do? Micah's saying, there's this hope that is coming. Chapter 4, verse 11, he returns to the present. He says, now, currently, many nations are assembled against you. They're not flocking to you. They're coming against you saying, let her be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But God, but they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan that he has gathered the nations as sheaves to the threshing floor. In other words, for judgment. Okay, but how's all this going to happen? How are we going to go from the current state of Israel the wickedness, the divided kingdoms. Israel has fallen to the north. Assyria's on the scene. It's not looking good. Micah, you're telling us that, that Jerusalem's going to be destroyed, that, that it's going to be a, a forest now where the temple once stood. Uh, Micah, what, what, what is going to happen? How is this going to come about? Chapter 5. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek, but you... O Bethlehem of Ephrathah. Who else came from Bethlehem of Ephrathah prior to Micah's time? David. Yes? David was born in Bethlehem of Ephrathah. And so as Micah is proclaiming this message of judgment to the people, a people of Israel who were under the oppression of Assyria and everything else, as soon as he mentions Bethlehem, they're going to think David. They're going to think, okay, another Davidic ruler is going to come. This is the answer, Micah. Okay, we're, we're tracking with you. We're following. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be of the clans of Judah, too little to be on a map, but from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Okay, this is the one. He's the one that's going to be ruler in Israel, not just of the south or the north, but of all of Israel, who is coming is from ancient of days, from of old. It's a debatable phrase there. Some think that this is a reference back to the way that God has delivered time and time and time again with the people of Israel. Others think that this is because he's talking about Jesus here, a reference to Christ's eternality. Either way, this is a unique king that's coming on the scene, one that has never been like any that have been there before. 
Verse three, therefore he shall give them up until that time. Okay, Israel, the judgment's going to happen. God is going to turn you over until that time when she who is in labor has given birth. Given birth to who? Christ. See, what Micah is telling the people is the key to our hope, the key to the, 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 this promise that God has been offering in chapter four of this time when there's gonna be this renewed kingdom, when people are gonna flock to, to Israel and flock to, to Jerusalem and flock to the temple to hear from the Lord. The key to that is the birth of Christ. Look at, he says, when the Assyrian comes into our land and treads on our places, we're gonna raise against him seven shepherds. Micah's saying at that time, Israel's gonna be such a powerful nation. Even if Assyria comes against us, because remember in his mind, that's the big bad enemy at this time, we'll, we'll send shepherds against them. And that will be enough to overcome them. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, verse six, and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. He shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. In other words, this great king that's going to come in chapter 5, verse 2, this great king is going to be a king like none other that Israel has ever experienced. He's telling the people, this is your hope. Remnant, those that are in the remnant, those that want to be in the remnant, this is your hope to swear allegiance to this king that's going to come. And you say, well, yes, but we know the rest of the story and we know that that, that didn't happen at the first coming of Christ. True. But do you remember John's opening in his gospel? He came to his own. What does that phrase mean? It means that Jesus came to his, his own as this ruler from Micah chapter 5 verse 2. As the one that had Israel repented and followed Jesus and recognized Jesus as their Messiah. What is prophesied about in Micah chapter 4, that would have happened at that moment. He came to his own, but according to the sovereign plan of God, his own what? Did not receive him. They missed him. And what's even more tragic about that is, you remember the wise men, they go to, to search out Jesus and they go to Herod first and, and they say, we're here to find him that's been born king of the Jews. And Herod gets all verklempt and, and frustrated and, and worried about that, right? And he gathers, it says, all of the scribes and the officials to inquire from them where the king of the Jews is to be born. And the scribes and the officials and the Pharisees say, you got us, I don't know, Jerusalem? No, they quote this verse. They knew the significance of Bethlehem of Ephrathah. They knew the significance of the one that would be born there, that would be the king and the Messiah and the ruler. And now they're hearing the one who has been born king of the Jews is here and there's nothing from them because they missed him. They missed him. They were looking for a different kind of Messiah. Excuse me, point number two for us this morning. We can't miss him, guys. We have to trust God's king and his peace. Trust in God's king and his peace. Not any of the, the counterfeits that are out there, and there are plenty of counterfeits that are willing to step up and say, I'll be your Messiah. I'll be your source of peace. Think about Micah as he's writing this. Micah would never come to see this king. He would never come to know the king of Micah chapter 5 verse 2 and yet his hope still needed to be anchored to him for his ultimate deliverance. He needed to get to the mindset of, of Habakkuk in Habakkuk chapter 3 when Habakkuk says, you know what, though, though there be nothing on the vines, though the fig tree should fail, still I'm going to 
Trust the Lord. That's where Micah had to be. That's where Habakkuk had to be. And man, that's where we have to be as well. Because the peace that we long for so much, ultimately, it it transcends peace in our marriages. It transcends peace in our homes with our children. It transcends peace financially to have a, a, a balanced budget and make sure that we've got a, a nice retirement. The peace that we long for, that we need, that we hope for is, is greater than having the right candidate in office. It's more than making sure that, that we're doing well at work and that our boss is pleased with our performance. It's not that any of those things are necessarily bad or wrong, but if our hope for peace ends there, we're going to be left severely disappointed because none of those things are going to ultimately last. See, our peace has to transcend anything that this world here can offer to us. The problem with with the Pharisees and the scribes and the Jews in the first century when Jesus came, when this ruler was born, is that they were looking for a peace that was a a temporal peace. They wanted a peace that was going to see Rome get out of Jerusalem. They wanted a peace that was going to see the Davidic throne reinstated in Jerusalem. They wanted a a peace that was going to see Israel rise to the dominance and prestige that it once had under Solomon and David. That was their peace that they were hoping in. But God was saying, I've got a peace that's so much better than any of that. And they missed it. We've got to be sure that we're not missing God's king and God's peace because it's so much better than anything that this world offers us. But how's he going to bring about this peace? Because remember, we've still got this problem with even the remnant, and that is they've still got this thing called sin. They're not perfect. They're not innocent. And the same God who we worship today and say, well, God cannot excuse or pardon sin without there to be a a, a payment is the same God that existed then as we look at this remnant and say, okay, God, well, how are you going to preserve them? What are we going to do with this? Well, first, again, we return to judgment. Chapter 6, hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. In other words, if you're going to try to defend yourself, you might as well defend yourself to the mountains and the hills because it's just, it's going to be emptiness. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. In other words, Micah is saying, yes, this is the hope that we have, but we still have a problem right now that we need to deal with. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? God says, how have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. I'm still not sure how Miriam makes that list, but she does. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. Balak wanted curses. God caused Balaam to do what to Israel? Bless Israel. And remember what happened from Shittim to Gilgal. Do you all remember what happened from Shittim to Gilgal? That's the location at the Jordan River where Israel crossed into the promised land for the first time in the book of Joshua. And so God is saying, remember my faithfulness to you, my kindness to you. And now verse six, you say, well, with what should we come before the Lord? How should we respond to this? I bow myself before God on high. Shall I I come with burnt offerings, God? With calves a year old? Would you be pleased with thousands of rams? With ten thousands of rivers of oil, if I brought that? 
Maybe I should give my firstborn for my transgression, like Molech, burning their children on that statue. The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. In other words, Israel, God is indicting them and saying, you've responded by making this all about the external. You've gone through motions and through some absolutely horrendous motions at that, offering up your children like the wicked nations. And trusting in those external acts to make you right with me. But he's saying, Israel, I've got a problem. That's not going to make you right with me. What's going to make you right with me is Micah chapter 6, verse 8. What has God required of you, O Israel? He has told you what is good. To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. In other words, God wants you internally before he wants you externally. God wants that humility, that submission to him that's going to produce a kindness and love for other people that's going to lead to you doing justice. And this fits the context because justice was being perverted left and right during the time of Micah. And God was saying the problem with that is because you're trusting in the external and there's no change that's taken place internally. You're not actually following me. And so if you hope to see good on the external, it has to begin first and foremost within. He goes on in the rest of chapter six and describes more of the judgment. You shall eat, verse 14, but not be satisfied. There's gonna be hunger. You're gonna put away, but not preserve. You're gonna sow, but not reap. Tread olives, but not anoint yourselves. Tread grapes, but not drink wine. Why? For you have kept the statutes of Omri, all the works of the house of Ahab, the northern kings there. Wicked things, idolatry. And so that's why I'm going to bring justice. Micah says, woe is me, chapter 7, verse 1. The godly have perished from the earth, verse 2. There's no one upright among mankind. Micah is trembling under the weight, much like the prophet Habakkuk did as well, aware of the gravity of the judgment that's about to befall Israel. In fact, in verse 4, he says, the day of your watchman, Israel, It's here. Your punishment has come. Your watchmen, as they look out from the towers, they're going to look and they're going to see God is coming now against you. He's rending the heavens. He's coming. Your watchmen are going to look and see. But notice verse 7, but as for me, I'm going to look somewhere else. Where am I going to look? I'm going to look to the Lord. I'm going to look to the Lord and I will wait for the God of my salvation and deliverance. How's God going to preserve a remnant by the people turning to the Lord and trusting in him for their deliverance, for their salvation. Look at how the book ends here. Verse 18. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love and mercy. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Our final point tonight, or this morning as we land, as we wrap up is this. Praise God for the forgiveness of sin. This is the hope of the remnant and it's our hope as well. That this is the God, this is the character of the God that you and I get to come before. A God who pardons iniquity, passes over transgression for the remnant of his people, of his inheritance. He does not retain anger because he delights in compassion and mercy and steadfast love. He's going to cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. There's a song called His Mercy is More by an artist named Matt Papa, P-A-P-A. And the first verse of this song says this, what love, 
What love could remember no wrongs we have done? Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. I love that line. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. And that, you've got trouble sleeping. Try to picture that. In other words, those sins aren't coming back ever again. And that was the hope that Micah offered to the people Israel as he was bringing a message of strong indictment and judgment against them saying, God's judgment is coming, but it's not the end of the story. It doesn't have to be the end of the story for you. There's hope. And that's why, again, the the theme of this book is that the Lord judges and the Lord forgives. And so, men, as we wrap our time together this morning, the thing that I want to encourage us to do is to be Micah in this world that we live in to go out with this message that there is a judgment that is coming and the judgment that is coming is, believe it or not, going to be far worse than what Israel endured and what Judah endured at the hands of Assyria and at the hands of Babylon. As tragic and horrible as that is, the judgment that's coming, that is coming after the, the loved ones in our lives who don't know Christ is gonna be far worse than that. And so as Micah was warning his people and mourning over that judgment, so too we need to go out and we need to be those that are mourning over the judgment that God is going to bring against the lost in our lives and and warning them and pleading with them to turn to the Lord for their deliverance, to see that this God is a God who pardons iniquity and who forgives transgressions, who will not retain his anger because he delights in steadfast love. He delights in mercy To say to the lost that we know and that we care about, God wants to forgive you. He has no delight in the death of the wicked. God is not slow as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance and faith. But that judgment is going to come. The day is going to come when God turns to Jesus, the son, and says, now's the time, go. Gather your bride. And so there needs to be an urgency with us to plead, to call for the response, to call for the verdict when we share the gospel with people and to hold out the hope. And then for us as believers, as we look at this book, as we read this book, it also can be a great reminder for us and a great source of joy for us to be reminded that we don't have to fear that God rending the heavens and coming down after us in that way because we've been forgiven by him through Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for that reality, for your mercy that you are a God who forgives, who pardons, who delights in steadfast love. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for that. God, may that message go out from this place to more and more and more, God. We pray that more and more and more in our community would have their eyes open to their need for Jesus and that they would come to faith in Christ as their Lord and Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.